hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator. Welcome back to the next episode of BC Law's Just Law Podcast. I'm Tom Blakely here with Jim Fiore. We're joined today by Professors Daniel Lyons and Kevin Powers. Uh, Daniel Lyons is a professor at Boston College Law School specializing in property, telecommunications, and internet law, as well as administrative law. Before joining BC Law, Lyons practiced at the firm of Munger, Tolles, and Olson in L.A. He also clerked for Judge Cynthia Holcomb Hall of the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. He received his bachelor's degree from Harvard College and his J.D. from Harvard Law School. Lyons has testified before Congress and state legislators and has participated in numerous proceedings at the FCC. His work has appeared in legal journals such as the Emory Law Journal and the Popular Press, including Forbes Magazine, U.S. News & World Report, and the Wall Street Journal. Kevin Powers is the founder and director of the Master of Science in Cybersecurity Policy and Governance Program at Boston College and an assistant professor of practice at Boston College Law School. Along with his teaching at Boston College, Kevin is a cybersecurity research affiliate at the MIT Sloan School of Management, and he has taught courses at the U.S. Naval Academy, where he, is also, where he was also the deputy general counsel to the superintendent. There were 25 years of combined cybersecurity, data privacy, business, law enforcement, military, national security, higher education, teaching experience. He has worked as an analyst and attorney for the U.S. Department of Justice, the Navy, the U.S. Department of Defense, law firms in Boston, Washington, and the general counsel for a software company. Uh, today we're going to be talking about the Twitter files, which has been a story in the news which has attracted considerable attention, congressional testimony, questions about uh, what's going on behind the scenes at the big tech companies. And so we want to talk about some of the legal and policy and big picture uh, dimensions of the topic. Well, gentlemen, thank you both for uh, for joining us. Um, Professor Lyons, I wanted to go to you first and just ask broadly, what are the Twitter files and what was uncovered in there? Yeah, so the Twitter files were a series of uh, documents that were released by Elon Musk uh, shortly after uh, his takeover of Twitter or earlier uh, uh, this year, last year? I think, like, I think it was yeah. December. December, yeah. Late so, 2022. Yeah. I, I lose track, right? <laughs> yeah, so... Um, uh, when one of the, the motivating factors for Elon Musk to put up a bid for Twitter was a concern that uh, the existing management uh, under Jack Dorsey was uh, moderating content in a way that um, uh, created an unlevel playing field for political content, that they were exercising the moderator's prerogative disproportionately in ways that were um, uh, downplaying conservative viewpoints. And so the, the purported... Um, uh, uh, purpose of the Twitter files was to sort of bring the receipts. Now that Musk had taken over the company, he was going to provide uh, back of it. So there was a series of uh, data dumps that Musk gave to uh, specific journalists involved in this area, uh, Matt Taibbi and um, uh, Michael Schellenberger and several others, each of which focused on a specific aspect of uh, Twitter's content management practices in the period before the takeover. The big sort of splashy one was the very first uh, uh, revelation, which was about how Twitter handled the um, suppression of the New York Post story about Hunter Biden's laptop in the days leading up to the 2020 election. And, and so, Professor Powers, what was uncovered in the Twitter files concerning kind of the relationship between the FBI and the intelligence agencies at Twitter? Um, all right. Speaking in general terms, <laughs> what was uncovered is an alleged, uh, when you step back, is that the FBI was not really working with Twitter, um, but was asking them, you know, one, to look into information, focus on misinformation, and, tell, you know, and then asking them to pull such information mm -hmm. down. Um, one of the splashes, uh, to use Dan's phrase there, was uh, that the FBI was allegedly paying Twitter uh, money to do this. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, there was a you know, question there. It was like, hey, wait a minute. Is uh, the FBI now paying companies to pull down information that they don't want to be in the public domain? Mm -hmm. uh, the FBI, you know, came back and said, like, well, 
you know, we make these requests and sometimes we pay companies because they're doing this work and they need to be compensated to do so. Mm -hmm. So that was one of the big issues that came out of the Twitter files along with a bunch of other ones I'm sure we're going to be discussing. Yeah. And um, so does this raise like a privacy concern? And this, I guess this could be for either of you, but mm -hmm. um, like what privacy issues are, are, are raised with this, with this issue? Well, I'll take that first. Uh, the first one is uh, the releasing uh, private uh, information of their employees, mm -hmm. okay? And you step back, so there's personally identifiable information. So Twitter, we're just going to use the Europeans' general data protection regulation as yep. an example because that applies to them. Um, arguably, and in fact, they release private information. So my name, Kevin Powers, mm -hmm. you know, that's considered uh, personal information, the disclosure of which if I give it over to you and you're a company like Twitter and you mm -hmm. release that or there's a data breach, you know, someone steals it, you know, you have to contact the supervisor authority, uh, authority that applies to you and let them know there's been a data breach. Mm -hmm. So you step back here. When they released all that information, uh, they created their own data breach, arguably, mm -hmm. and they could be in trouble with the regulators on that. And is that just under the GDPR in, or is that also... Yeah, so because yeah, I was using the GDPR as a general yeah, yeah. example, no pun intended, as a general example. Uh, but yeah, that could be uh, impacting you know California citizens, yep. depending there. Mm -hmm. And then you have to look at the you know I think there's right now six state uh, privacy laws, but the big player in here would be the uh, Federal Trade Commission, the mm -hmm. FTC. Mm -hmm. They would look at the practices. Mm -hmm. You know, again, you have personally identifiable information. You have to protect it. There's standards in place, and instead you are releasing it to the general public. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, first of lines, I want to ask you, why might Elon Musk, who's, you know, the new owner of Twitter, Twitter uh, turn over this information, you know, it's, uh, people call it, you know, uh, select information uh, to select journalists, Matt Taibbi, Barry Weiss, um, and others. Some have criticized the decision to provide certain files to just these uh, reporters, independent reporters, um, primarily. Well, what can you tell us about that? Yeah, so I, I think the... Um the cynical explanation, right, is to, to sort of back up the narrative that he was uh, pushing before the uh, his uh, takeover of Twitter, which was that there, in fact, is content moderation policies in place at the platform that were tilting uh, against conservative viewpoints. Mm -hmm. uh, there's been, a, uh, as you sort of hinted at, a tremendous amount of pushback from uh, what uh, Musk has released uh, in that, it, uh, particularly from uh, Jack Dorsey and some of the um, – uh, former management who were implicated in this, right, suggesting that you're only getting one side of the story and asking for greater disclosure. Um, and to be fair, the academic uh, community on this uh, question is sort of split as well, right? Uh, you can always point to high-profile instances of um, uh, suppression of conservative viewpoints, but uh, the Hunter Biden laptop story is a classic example, right? Uh, but on the other hand, you look at like um, – the the list of uh, topics that are trending or, or um, material that's trending on any given day, right? On, on Facebook, right? Ben Shapiro's and Daily Wire stuff tends to be in the top ten, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, I, I would say the evidence out there is mixed. So I think one of the reasons why uh, this drop happens the way it does is kind of shape the discourse and, and highlight there's at least some there there. How much we don't know yet. Sure. Uh, I want to follow up on Hunter Biden's laptop in a moment, but I want to ask you, Professor Powers. So the, in these files, it was revealed that the FBI was asking Twitter to provide. Uh, you know, you mentioned a privacy issue, you know, another privacy issue, provide information about uh, U.S. users, oftentimes small, seemingly unremarkable accounts. Is that not a privacy issue? Is it not perhaps warrantless surveillance on, you know, U.S. users, you know, sort of but for the fact the old Twitter regime was sort of willingly handing that data over? Um, what, what was going on with some of that? Well, if you're the FBI, you can ask, you can say no, and then you can seek a subpoena. And in this case, you know, they asked and Twitter gave the information over. Mm -hmm. um, 
you know, that happens a lot, you know, where they go out to different companies, they're investigating criminal <laughs> uh, issues, and they'll ask. You know, they don't necessarily start with a subpoena and they'll just ask, hey, we have this case going on. We're wondering if we could have XYZ data. Uh, what happened here is they asked and they gave the information over. Now, you know, stepping back from that as a citizen, are you looking like, well, what's going on here? Mm -hmm. You know, like we have this private entity, you know, that says it's not working with the government, but it seems based on like how Dan explained it, like, you know, you look at some of these emails, but not all of them. So in a box, it looks like that the FBI is working, you know, hand on glove with Twitter to suppress information. You know, there's a bigger story here, but we don't have all that information because it hasn't been released. Sure. Uh, and then again, you know, it's a private company, mm -hmm. right? Like, so you step back and I'm just going to throw out a piece here, like with the privacy aspect of it, but there's also the shareholders aspect of it. And then there's also the business side of the house. Mm -hmm. You know, this type of information shouldn't be coming out from a business, just throwing it out there on a public social media platform for all to see, mm -hmm. you know, and then, you know, the, uh, the information they're giving out is, you know, bit by bit. Sure. Uh, the, I, I'm interested where the regulators are going to go on this, you know, both in the United States and internationally. Uh, Preston Lyons, I want to follow up with you. Uh, so the saga of Hunter Biden's laptop in 2020 is sort of a central chapter of the story of the Twitter files. It appears to show that Twitter, uh, essentially upon word from the intel agencies, that that story was a hoax. You know, this gets a little complicated. Um, in 2020, banned the story from the site. There's this, you know, incident of uh, the New York Post, I believe, having their account um, essentially jammed up trying to trying to report on that uh, on what was ultimately a false rumor of the report that it was disinformation that it was false. Could, could you explain, you know, number one, what was happening with Hunter Biden and the Twitter files, um, and then number two, um, you know, in a time where there's vigorous debate about things like Section 230 and content moderation generally. Is this a normal way for these platforms to operate and engage in content moderation where essentially the government is asking the platforms to jump and the platforms ask how high? Yeah, so um, a few different pieces of that, right? So uh, what was the story? The story basically involved um, a New York Post report about material that uh, purportedly was on Hunter Biden's laptop that a tech found when he was doing some re uh, repair work on it that um, implicated uh, Biden uh, Jr., Hunter Biden, uh, in some pretty bad stuff. And so when the post went public with this story, um, the both Facebook and Twitter took steps to limit or reduce, uh, limit or eliminate the um, promotion of that story on their platforms. In the case of Twitter, the argument was it violates Twitter's uh, ostensibly neutral policy against um, disseminating material that was the sub that was uh, produced as a result of a hack. Right, the idea that this tech who was accessing the uh, information should not have uh, gotten it and, and released it to the post the way that he did. So if Hunter Biden was hacked, then this violates our, our policy against hacking. Um, the uh, Twitter files show that that decision was made at sort of a mid-level in the Twitter hierarchy. Jack Dorsey, the then head of Twitter, was not involved. Uh, and then upon review, when Twitter got a bunch of pushback about uh, their decision, uh, the company admitted that it was a mistake. They, should have, they shouldn't have done that. That's not terribly surprising, right? Uh, you have a company that is processing a billion tweets a day. Uh, and they're trying to and, and trying to assess them uh, compared to a, a long slew of rules about what is and is not appropriate on their platform. So, um, uh, the expectation that they're going to get it right 100% of the time uh, is fair. Like, you're going to get a lot of false positives, a lot of false negatives. Uh, that, and most of those we don't know. No, the challenge here is when you end up with, in this case, a uh, false positive that uh, has significant implications, right? 
the more um, high profile the story is, uh, the more likely the uh, effects of that uh, false positive decision making is going to be felt throughout the, the population. Sure. Um, Professor Powers, I want to go to you. So, you know, revelations such as these that there was essentially this secret program run by the FBI and the OGA, other government agencies, basically the CIA, uh, that was basically acquiring covertly information on users, telling the platforms what speech to ban or shadow ban, there's this term that's used. Um, seems like a pretty big scandal. And instead, of course, like many things today, it's uh, politicized where you've got the right saying this is censorship, this is all these things. You've got people on the left like uh, Democrats like Stacey Plaskett who during uh, – the hearings said that these are so-called journalists discrediting the reporting. What's going on there in Washington when it comes to interpretations of what's happened here? <laughs> That's a loaded question. Uh, <laughs> uh, I think, you know, step back uh, again. I think what we really need here is like there's a lot you just put out there, sure. right? Uh, I, I think you actually need to have uh, – I would recommend an inspector general's investigation into this because you have, like you clearly stated, you know, if Congress is going to investigate this, uh, it's going to be politicized. You're going to have people on the left saying one thing, yeah. you know, all is well. And then on the right saying, no, this is anarchy. You know, the, there's a third state that's taking us out and they're not following the rules. Uh, I really would like to see a neutral, and which is tough to get, right, but an inspector general investigation to see what really happened uh, and then go from there. Because right now we're just getting, you know, bits and pieces from Twitter, yeah. okay, and then we're getting, you know, whatever snapshots that are out there and people yelling at each other in congressional hearings and nothing's getting done and we're not getting to the bottom of this, which is very <clears throat> problematic because it causes us as citizens to have angst and now we no longer trust, you know, the Federal Bureau of Investigation. We don't trust the CIA. We don't trust the Department of Defense. And that's a problem because you start chipping away at the government uh, and then, you know, as they they like to say on both sides, democracy then fall. Yep. And then as a follow-up to that, where, you know, we have these investigations and potential future regulations, as social media becomes more ingrained in society and becomes the de facto town square where, you know, information ideas are expressed and exchanged, you kind of need that to be able to, you know, partake in that uh, civil discourse, is it plausible that in the that this will lead to some future government regulation where there's more of a like involvement by the government in regulating these tech uh, companies where it's more of a partnership and they will just have more, instead of it being kind of more discreet as it was with the with the Twitter files that are coming out, but more like open and they're just going to you think there will be a call to just have more open government regulation of, of social media? Uh, I doubt it. <laughs> One reason is because Congress can't, you know, pass any legislation mm -hmm. right now. And they talk about, you know, they can't even get a privacy law in place right now. They've been trying to do this for the past 10 years and they haven't. Uh, and I think the next piece, too, is, you know, the First Amendment. You know, it's freedom freedom of speech. Mm -hmm. No one's want to touch that third rail and say, guess what? The government's going to start uh, moderating and telling you what you can say and what you can't say. So you said that's, you know, the town hall. It's a public forum. Yep. Well, you have a right, you know, First Amendment right to certain uh, levels of speech, and I don't think you're going to have regulations uh, dictating what people can say or not say on, you know, different social mm -hmm. media. Yeah, I think just to amplify on that, right? Um, there's a huge difference between a publicly owned town square and a privately owned social media platform. It's not just that 
um, uh, the First Amendment applies to the government and not to um, private actors, but also that the private actors themselves are protected by the First Amendment. So mm -hmm. Twitter and Facebook have a First Amendment right of editorial control um, that defends their ability to decide what content they want to put on the platform, what content they don't, mm -hmm. how they amplify it. Uh, government attempts to regulate that, uh, forcing social media uh, platforms to include content that they would otherwise block or um, regulating the way in which uh, information is presented mm -hmm. is a huge First Amendment problem, mm -hmm. right? So the, it, when you think about this, uh, the question of speaking on um, social media platforms, we think about the users, but I think it's important to recognize the platforms themselves have a significant First Amendment right mm -hmm. uh, that's implicated anytime we start uh, going down that regulatory path. Yeah. So Lyons, I want to ask you, so what does this show us, if anything, about how these platforms are run? You know, it seems like a lot of people today, it's conservatives, you know, maybe years ago during the Bush administration it would tend to be U.S. liberals concerned about, you know, the Patriot Act, the excesses of, um, you know, the intel agencies. But, you know, today the right, you know, talks about you're censoring us, you're shadow banning us, big tech is biased. And, you know, oftentimes I think some of those people can be characterized as sort of like the tinfoil hat crowd. And then all this comes out and it's like, oh, wait a minute, they kind of were doing a lot of these things. Um, is this indicative of typical conduct, content moderation conduct at the tech companies. In other words, if you looked under the, this is just Twitter, mm -hmm. but if I looked under the hood at Meta, at these other companies, do, do you assess that things like this are the norm or, you know, what does this say? So uh, I'll say, um, unless you're like 8chan, right? Some like complete cesspool where anything goes. Every social media platform has content moderation rules and they, and they do for a reason, right? The reason is because they're interested in drawing uh, users to the site and keeping users on the site. Uh, and they do that by making sure that they give users content they want to see and not content they don't want to see, right? So every social media platform is making content-based decisions. Um, so they draw lines in different areas, right? So Facebook has a no pornography policy. Twitter will allow pornography but put it behind a, a warning uh, screen so you have to you get click through before you're you're subjected to it. Uh, and that's important because I think each of these is playing to a, di a slightly different audience. They're competing against one another to figure out what the optimal um, content moderation scheme would be, and it might differ based uh, depending on the the segment of the American population, the world population that they're going for. Uh, so decisions are going to be uh, content moderation decisions are sort of inherent in um, a social media platform that isn't a complete cesspool. Mm -hmm. The question then becomes sort of how do our biases affect those decisions, right? The argument from the right has been that the vast majority of employees at most of these social media companies are. Um, uh, democratic leaning and democratic donors. And so at the margin that their, their decisions are going to, um, uh, favor left of center viewpoints and disfavor right of center viewpoints, even if it's subconsciously. Uh, I don't know how much truth there is to that. The Twitter file suggests there's something, there's some smoke there, right? But it, like I said, there's definitely data on the other side. Uh, but there's a fantastic law review article, um, from 2012, I want to say it's called, they saw a protest. The, the um, studiers uh, used some footage of um, uh, the Westboro Baptist Church protesting outside um, uh, some uh, uh, military facility. Um, and, uh, but the, the, the uh, content itself was completely devoid of any context. Mm -hmm. Then they brought in two control groups. Um, one was uh, self-identified as right of center, one was self-identified as left of center. And then they told half of each control group this was a protest outside an abortion facility, and the other half that it was a protest outside of a military recruitment center protesting the don't ask, don't tell policy. 
And it turns out that everybody's view of the footage um, depended on their political priors and what they thought the political persuasions of the protest were, right? The more it aligned with your views, the more you thought, oh, what's going on here is okay. The more it was opposite, it was like, ah, not. so there's a lot of tribalism at the subconscious level. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what the article showed. And, I, and the concern is that um, when you have a disproportionately left of center moderation group, mm-hmm. that um, at the margin, that bias could feed in. So a follow up on that, and it sort of segues into my next question, which is for both of you. But following up on that, you know, you I think the obvious broader context here is you know looking at 2016 and that election and concerns about you know foreign governments, misinformation, things like that, and you know the government's response and some of what we've we've come to find was going on here. One of the big problems with the tech companies that's sort of evident is, as you said, there's so much content that's going back and forth. You can't possibly police every single thing. And here, the government steps in and seems to assist with that post-2016 is, is kind of what you find in the Twitter files. Do you believe that the tech companies are, uh, I think, willing to take the help? In other words, you know, outsource some of those, those decisions to the government, to experts, to other people to say, hey, take this down, don't take that down, so that they themselves don't have to go through and try to make some of those hard decisions? Or is this, uh, you know, like you'll, you'll hear the company line, well, we're working with our partners and we're, you know, et cetera. Um, how do you feel that that plays out behind the scenes in terms of taking that assistance from the government? So from a legal perspective, I think as Professor Powers pointed out earlier, right, the government can ask, Mm -hmm. but as long as they're not compelling, right, there's no sort of quid pro quo involved, um, it it remains sort of legally the the, uh, editorial decision of the content provider. Um, I'm not surprised that uh, someone like Twitter or Facebook would want to at least have that input uh, as part of their um, decision-making matrix because they're leveraging the information that the intelligence community has gathered, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but the fact that it's ultimately their decision helps them decide uh, how to filter that information, whether to take it with a grain of salt. I don't know if you have more thoughts on that. No, it, it gives you coverage, yeah. right? So if you're working with you know, the FBI or law enforcement and they're telling you, hey, we're looking at some of this information. It looks like it's coming from Russia or wherever. You know, Be careful. Well, if you make your decisions and it's based on something the government, law enforcement is telling you, you have that coverage for the reason you did it. Hey, the FBI came to us and said, Russia, these all this information is coming from Russia. It's misinformation. You know, take a look at it. And that helps with your standards. Yeah. You know, it, it changes the game if they came in and said, pull it down. Sure. Yeah. Well, and you're always worried about, um, we talk about false positive, false negative, yeah. right? You're always worried about the fact that it may be right, right? I'm, and this is not uh, unique to social media platforms. So you go back to the post 9-11 era, when the Bush administration asked uh, Verizon and AT&T to, you know, open up their networks and allow the government to do some obviously illegal stuff to surveil, right? The the administration was approaching them and said, hey, America's under attack, right? There's some real national security problems. We need you to step up and do this for your country. It was really hard for them to say no. And really hard, especially if the next 9-11 happens in the wake of that, right? And it can be blamed on the, the company not cooperating with the government to prevent it from happening. Sure. So those those calculations are weighing in the background as well. So going off of that, this is sort of a question for both of you, Professor Powers, I can go to you first. Um, so a central term in our discourse the last few years has become disinformation, misinformation, these terms um, that are used so frequently now. And I could be wrong, but 
I myself, I'm not convinced that most Americans could give you a clear definition of what those terms means. I think everyone understands, obviously, what false information is. You know, we talk in the law about true threats, uh, you know, violent speech and things like that. But misinformation, disinformation seem to have a, a lower bar, bar than, you know, falsehoods, information that's libelous, you know, things that we're familiar with. Um, and yet it seems like a whole lot of speech is being banned in the name of limiting misinformation and disinformation what do those terms mean and how do they figure into the future of these issues with big tech? Let me get my dictionary out. <laughs> uh, when I think of uh, disinformation, misinformation, I'm thinking it on the um, military side of the house. Mm -hmm. You know, so you're having a campaign. So, you know, whether you have your adversaries and you want to get information out there really to undercut the government or undercut their military. Uh that's what I'm thinking. Uh, but when I look at the social media piece, I think those are buzzwords used that if you don't agree with a certain type of speech, you say that's disinformation, right. that's misinformation, and both sides are doing it right now. And I think that's the whole problem on social media when we're talking about this whole issue with Twitter files, misinformation, and whatnot, is that Dan brought it up. There's so much information out there, and I think what we need is an educated populace that can look at information and say, discern and say, like, well, that's BS. Okay, I can follow that. Or you start looking at the media sources that are legitimate. Don't just go for what you want to hear. You know, anyone can do that. I can, you know, go to Celtics.com and say the Celtics are the best all the time, but then look and go, well, they lost last night yeah. in the game. They should have won, right? So I, I think that's the real issue there that as a public we have to start educating ourselves and start being more discerning yeah it seems like it should be like a start being like a required course in like middle school to like but, how to how to read the news well, and verify if you go on apple news yeah. right you just pull it up think of all that half i don't even know what these news sources are mm -hmm. and they're all opinion based yeah they're not factual you know so you start looking for facts then if you want to read opinions great but go in there not just looking for yours yeah. you know look for both sides of an issue and the sense in which that's sort of a, pro, a broad, speaks to a broader problem in society, right? That we, um, uh, as a society, are gravitating toward uh, headlines that reinforce our priors and avoid the things that kind of challenge our beliefs or make us feel uh, uncomfortable. And it just means we're drifting toward a, an illiberal society. And it's not a good thing for a, right. a democracy that requires a well-informed public. Yeah. Uh, that having been said... Uh, I think there's serious concerns with trying to regulate disinformation or misinformation because the regulators have their own biases, right? So think back, um, so Thomas Kuhn uh, wrote a uh, foundational book called The Structures of Scientific Revolutions, which kind of explains how it is that um, scientific thinking evolves over time. And the way it happens is everybody believes that uh, the sun goes around the earth, right? And then Copernicus comes up with this idea that maybe uh, maybe we all rotate the, the sun instead, and he's called called uh, wrong, right? He's finding flaws in the existing model and offering a hypothesis, uh, an alternate hypothesis. That alternate hypothesis is, is disinformation to those who believe in the status quo. But uh, over time, maybe, you know, you find more problems with the existing model and more support for the alternate hypothesis and eventually scientific thinking flips, right? Mm -hmm. um, it's not without cost. Galileo is excommunicated for his disinformation for pushing Copernican theory, right? Um, but if you don't allow that process to occur, you freeze your thinking. Um, it's it's like sort of the height of hubris. So we've got all we've got it all figured out. And it can't possibly be that we're wrong on anything whatsoever. Sure. That's a, the death of sort of liberal growth. Yeah. And is that just like the natural process? Is there any way as a side to speed that up, or it's kind of just that's the way it goes? Yeah. I, mean, we, I think that the trick for regulators and for policymakers is to make sure that the public square is available for that dialogue. Yeah. Right. That. Um, uh, 
at, even at the cost of having sort of QAnon types at the fringes, right? Mm -hmm. You have to make room for viewpoints to be heard and battled out in the marketplace of ideas. I'm a big fan of that metaphor because yeah. that's how learning happens. Yeah. Uh, last question I wanted to ask before we wrap up. Um, I appreciate you both being here today. You know, there's one, I think it was uh, one of the journalists, Matt Taibbi, right before he testified at Congress, released another one of these files. And, there, you know, we've talked about Hunter Biden, but another storyline here is COVID and sort of vaccine hesitancy and things like that. Obviously, there's a lot of, false information during the pandemic about vaccines and government's motives, things like that, all sorts of crazy stuff. But, you know, there are some things in there where you see, uh, you know, directives to limit information that might, I think the language was promote vaccine hesitancy, which theoretically could include information that's true. You know, there's certain uh, risks and dangers to vaccines. And there were concerns about, well, these vaccines haven't been tested enough, which is all true per se. But you had that information being restricted because as the information from the Twitter files revealed, it promoted vaccine hesitancy. So Twitter goes in and you know removes some of that information. It seems like a pretty dangerous prospect to be going in and limiting speech in that type of context. Is there going back from this? Is this like muscle memory for these platforms now? And what, what does that say about what, what, what's going on in there as we move past the pandemic and you know these issues tend to hang around? I'm glad you brought up the pandemic because I think, you know, we went through this pandemic and you really saw in action, you know, like, you know, there was two sides of the fence and that was it. And people, if you questioned anything like, you know, hey, it was great if I went to a restaurant, I wore a mask. But when I sat down, I could take my mask off and magically I was fine and I could have a conversation as long as I'm drinking and eating all as well. Everyone knew, you know, OK, that's a workaround, uh, but you play along with it. Uh, I think the good thing that, you know, the pandemic is going to this issue is that everyone and as Americans, we do it better than no one else is we question government mm -hmm. all the time. Mm -hmm. And I think people now are questioning not only government, but every news story that comes out in, in a good way. And I, I'm talking about like, you know, the general populace, not the extreme left or the extreme right. And they're always going to be there. But people now are questioning. And that's what I think you want in a democracy is that as a citizen, people are getting more active in government. They're more interested and they're more focused on their communities. And I think, you know, five, you know, okay, I have rows of glasses on. And I always see the better. And I think we're going to be in a better place in five years. We're getting through it. Um, and hopefully we can fix this. But I don't think you're going to fix it from regulation. Again, I think you're going to fix it by education and being more discerning of the information that comes out. Sure. Yeah, and I just had, you know, God bless the, the guys who are in, the, the folks who are in power at the time making the best decisions they could in an uh, unprecedented pandemic. Right. Right. Um, I, I, I believe they were making their decisions in good faith based on the best information they have possible. But uh, it's not a surprise that with hindsight, many of those decisions turn out to be wrong. Um, and and uh, that's going to happen, right, when you're making decisions based on imperfect information under um, time pressure. And so it, making space for those dissenting viewpoints to at least be heard, be logged, to continue informing the ongoing dialogue about you know, how our scientific understanding of this pandemic evolved is important. And in a sense, I think it was a mistake to for the um, government to push and for uh, social media companies to um, accede in. Um, preventing those alternative viewpoints from being heard. Sure. Uh, well, professors, thank you both for coming in. This has been BQ Law's Just Law oh, Podcast. You. I'm Tom Blake. We've been talking about the Twitter files with professors Daniel Lyons and Kevin Powers. Until next time, that'll do it. Thanks for tuning in.